98, 99% of kids who do speech and debate in high school will look back and say, that was one of the most valuable things I did as a kid. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, episode 385, but there are not 385 episodes available on our website. Why is that? Because it's me. Listener, it's my fault that you cannot find episode one. I was so nervous when we first started doing this podcast almost 400 episodes ago, and I didn't want you, dear listener, to suffer the way I suffer when I find a new podcast that I love. I want to go back to the very beginning and listen to them all and binge listen. Only 385 episodes is way too many to listen to. Yeah, nobody would ever do that. So I suppose it's actually a mercy. We are eliminating some of the older episodes. And that is what we're hoping that you, dear listener, will appreciate the mercy we're extending to you. And so we do something called the exploding ladder, where when we release a new one, we sometimes go back and explode the previous one. So people get stranded on the roof and then have to jump off and break their leg. That's kind. <laughs> well, no, there's more rungs to climb up to the helicopter that will rescue them. Oh, or this is like Jacob's Ladder, just goes all the way to heaven. All the way to heaven, yes. And so I, I feel like after all these episodes, we're kind of slipping into a rhythm. And we've done this now for... Oh, I don't know, probably since COVID in 2020. And your job is to be sure the rhythm does not become a rut. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So episode 385, if it ends in five, we're specifically speaking to new homeschoolers. Oh, okay. And we talked about the possibility of doing this episode 10 episodes ago at 375. So this episode is based on your convention talk, Hacking High School. Yes, very popular talk this year so far. Yeah. And so the whole idea is you can homeschool high school. And Andrew Prudois has some tricks to help you homeschool high school. Now, you know, a word to those of you who have their students in school, because, you know, we have many listeners who are homeschooling only part-time because they're homeschooling after normal school hours. And also to so many teachers that a lot of what Andrew is saying today can actually apply to your situation in other areas. Right. So, hacking high school. Well, originally, I was going to title this, Just Don't Do High School. <laughs> uh, you, however, vetoed that title. I did. It's a little bit, I guess, too radical. And <laughs> here's the real irony is right after I thought... I want to do a talk called Just Don't Do High School. I got in the mail a book called 
skip college. Okay. So I just thought, well, if you don't do high school and you skip college, you know, what do we end up with? A bunch of 13-year-olds running the world? Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So um, hacking high school. Hacking means using, I guess, not common information to apply to a situation to get a better result. Mm, mm-hmm. I, I guess that might be a fair definition of okay. hacking. And, you know, some people are trying to hack biology and other people are trying to hack computer systems. Hmm. Those seem to be things that have their own preset way of operating, but with information and diligent application, you can hack them. (laughs) Which actually, when I think about someone hacking a computer, that doesn't give me a warm, fuzzy feeling. It makes me a little nervous. It would if you were a hacker. (laughs) It would give you a very warm, fuzzy feeling because you could make that thing do stuff that nobody else could make it Mm, do. mm -hmm. So, well, I did a talk several years in a row called Cultivating Language Arts Preschool Through High School. Yes. And like a lot of talks, it it was front heavy. I spent a lot of time on the preschool and primary and elementary years and middle school. But then by the end, I had only five minutes left to talk about high school. So the best I could do is essentially just read a list of things you could possibly do. So this talk unpacks many of those things. Great. Okay. So picking up where we left off, and I know we'll have a link in the podcast to your talk, Cultivating Language Arts, Preschool Through High School. And I'm pretty sure we've done a podcast or two on that. So high school, those are those are years where a lot of homeschooling parents go, oh, I don't know if I could do this. Yeah. One of the things I have long thought is that the education system in this country is very upside down in that the ideas of self-directed learning, exploration, experimentation, discovery, self-expression are educational ideals that are pushed in the younger years. And then very often, there's just no time in the high school years. Hmm. Um, I think that should be the opposite, right? And I'm not opposed to any of those things, but by pushing them in the elementary years, you lose out on the cultivation of the basic skills of reading and writing and calculating and being organized and learning to use basic information to think and do stuff. Right. And and that so often needs to be direct instruction, and and that's proven. You know, that is research-based, research-proven. We see it, you know, particularly in, say, the classical renewal in the in the school's world, the homeschool world. Yeah. And yet in high school, it's like, okay, now we have this grind. We have to jump in and start knocking off credits to put on a transcript so that we can, you know, be ready to get into college, get into a university. And so my basic argument is you don't have to do that. Okay, so what are some of those hacks that I can employ to my high school students? Yeah, so uh, these are some things that some people can do. Mm -hmm. Some of them are things that almost everyone can do. It is definitely more of a smorgasbord of ideas because you couldn't really do 
all the things that I'm about to say. I'm so glad you said that, Andrew. Sometimes we get overwhelmed with your great ideas. We want to do them all. Right. And and also, you know, it's important to keep in mind that if you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. So to incorporate one of these ideas into your life, whether you're high school or in school, whether you're homeschooling, high school, hybrid school, whatever, you will probably have to let go of something else. You mean whenever you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else? Theoretically. (laughs) So the first thing that I have been very enthusiastic about for many, many years is this area of competitive speech and debate and or mock trial speech contests. Mm-hmm. This this kind of all falls in the same category. Um, the, the old word is forensics, mm-hmm. which is the science of proving stuff. Uh, but speech and debate was once called, you know, forensics in that you're arguing to prove a point. One of the things that I appreciate so much about students who get involved in speech and debate is it is really the integration of those, you know, the five core language skills that we talk about. So listening, well, if you're going to respond to someone's argument, you'd better hear it well. Speaking, you know, being ready on the drop of the hat, so to speak, to say something organized, intelligent, applicable, um, understandable by both the other team and the judges. And so communicating verbally to particular audiences rather than just chatting, which is what so many people spend most of their time doing when they're speaking. Sure. Of course, reading. You know, a lot of preparation, careful reading, close reading, rereading, writing. You, if you're going to give a speech, you better write one and have it decently well. And even if you're in, uh, you know, policy debate or Lincoln Douglas debate, you have to write your affirmative constructive or you have to write out big chunks of your negative responses to various affirmatives. And then it, it all is about how well can you think about something. But even more than that, this world of competitive speech and debate, and and the debate in particular, forces everyone to look at both sides of a resolution, of a proposition, of a policy, of an idea. And this seems to be increasingly important in our world today. Absolutely. Because there's just so many people who only see one side of something and cannot even hear the arguments of of the opposition. Mm -hmm. And we can't have a kind of civil democratic process unless we are able and willing to listen to all sides when it comes to making decisions. And so I think above anything I know, competing in debate creates what, and I really don't like the term because it's such a buzzword mm. thing, critical thinking, Sure. in that you're really forced sometimes to actually argue both sides mm-hmm. of an issue and be prepared in that way. 
Now, uh, you know, if you are homeschooling, there are two great leagues. There's the NCFCA, National Christian Forensics and Communication Association. There's also <laughs> STOA, which is not an acronym, but it is a Greek word meaning porch outside a public building where people would stand around and discuss stuff, a STOA. <laughs> right. Okay, got it. Now, these two leagues are primarily homeschoolers, although in today's world, we have hybrid schoolers and online schoolers. And so the definition of homeschooler has expanded, which I think is good. And for schools, there's the National Speech and Debate Association. Okay. And uh, that's, you know, public schools all over the country uh, can participate and have teams. I think there's also one for Christian schools as mm. well. So there are a lot of opportunities. And this has been going on for a very long time. And so you don't have to figure out how to learn to do it. There are curriculums. There's clubs. There's organizations. There's experienced coaches almost everywhere. So I would look at that as one of the best ways to enhance high school in that you're going to learn some skills that are perhaps more applicable than anything else you might learn in the, quote, real world. Sure. It will take a lot of time. But I, I believe it's a worthwhile investment of time. So if you have to spend maybe a little less time slogging through a physics book or, you know, a literature anthology – uh, to do it, uh, I'd say it's a it's a good trade off, right? Yeah, because um, there's there's travel involved to go to the tournaments. I mean, even if it's in your local community, if you do well, then you continue to continue to travel. Right? <laughs> well, and the other thing, particularly, and I don't have experience uh, in the public school debate world, but in the homeschool debate world, I would say the social environment mm. is superior to anything I've seen anywhere, and so. Kids make really good friends. In fact, I know a few people who married their debate partner. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, kids make lifelong friendships. They There's a level of respect. There's a level of appreciation. There's a level of cooperation and teamwork. Mm -hmm. It's just such a high, high level. I could go on and on about that. But <laughs> yeah. that's the first thing I would say. And I would guess that the high 90 percent, maybe pushing 98, 99 percent, of kids who do speech and debate in high school will look back and say, that was the most valuable or one of the most valuable things I did as a kid. Sure. And moms and, you know, homeschooling parents can give credit for all kinds of things for high school, high school credit, you know. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You could you could put a whole lot of things on a transcript. There. Exactly. Connected with that is the study of logic and the study of rhetoric. These are you know, ancient liberal arts, grammar, logic, rhetoric, the trivium. People in the classical education world are more in touch with this. But really, anyone can get a book with the word logic on the cover and start learning, in a way, the traditional ancient art of argument. They can learn to think syllogistically. Here's a premise. Here's another premise. Here's a conclusion. Is this a valid syllogism? If not, why? And you can learn the fallacies, both in a formal and informal way. Sure. So whether you are calling yourself a classical educating family or class or school or whatever, even if you're not, I would suggest that the study of logic for two or three years around that upper middle high school level 
say, 8th, ninth, 10th grade, will have lasting benefits. And I, I actually taught logic, traditional logic one, traditional logic two, material logic, and Aristotle's rhetoric. Four years of logic? Four years I wow. taught. And what's, you know, and I don't know, you know, some of the kids got more out of it than others. But what I noticed is that in my teaching of it, it actually changed the way I am able to hear and think about things and to find logical fallacies in statements and arguments that other people make. It, it just really changed the way I, I would say I listen and think about what I hear very significantly. And I'm profoundly grateful for that. Sure. And uh, I am hoping that uh, when my grandchildren are old enough, I will kind of go through that same uh, cycle again. Right. of teaching logic. And so, you know, whether or not you're in a classical education world, uh, I would recommend that you look for some good materials to teach logic, e even if it's something very simple like The Fallacy Detective. Mm -hmm. That's a good book. Oh, by the way, we should send all of our listeners to, um, it's free online. It's the cutest thing in the world. It's called Love is a Fallacy. Oh, dear. It's a short story, very okay. short story. I don't remember the author, but it's very cute. Okay. And every teenager would love it. Every parent would love it. It's great. Link, link in the show notes. And, you know, to that degree, um, engaging students in kind of a Socratic style discussion about what they're reading. And, you know, this is something, again, that takes a lot of time. Uh, you know, you can say, here, read these chapters of this book, you're going to get a quiz. But to then say, let's read this together and talk about it, well, it's, it's going to be a much slower, but I would argue much deeper, more meaningful process. Sure. And in that context of Socratic discussion, students have to learn to listen to each other and respond to each other with appropriate comments and questions. And, you know, unfortunately, schools are just not well equipped to do this because of the time commitment, the curriculum, the transcript, the all of that. So, you know, incorporating it into a homeschool or as some kind of supplemental activity that can be done yeah. with a family at home. Uh, on the performance side, and I do think that performance opportunities are extremely valuable, and competition in general tends to hone skills. Yep. Uh, but uh, I've noticed that when kids get into drama or musical theater or um, declamation is kind of a specific thing where you memorize a speech by a famous person and then you give that speech as if you were that famous person. Nice. Even going so far as to perhaps dress like that person or emulate the accent or speaking style of that person. But so it's kind of, you know, half memory, half delivery, half performance. Well, and we spent a lot of time when I was homeschooling my boys in the world of theater and performance. We did not go down the debate, speech and debate pathway, just because both are so time consuming. You can't do both. Absolutely. And, you know, some of my kids did do both and it did take a tremendous yes, amount of I can't even imagine, time. Andrew. <laughs> uh, but again, it's one of those things as an adult, you look back on and say, well, that was very formative. You know, it got me out of my shyness. It it gave me a chance to 
cooperate and work with other people. Sure. And, you know, very often you hear the story of a child who says, no, I don't want to do debate. No, I don't want to give a speech. No, I don't want to be in a play. And then after the first time they do it, it's like, well, they're hooked. That was kind of cool. Yeah. So, uh, so I would encourage people to look into that. A lot of times people say, well, I don't have that in my area. Well, where we lived for 10 years, 99 to 09 in the central coast of California, well, the closest debate club was 90 miles away. Well, we can't do that. So we started our debate club. Mm-hmm. Uh, the community theater, there's weren't a lot of opportunities for kids and kids' parts. So we started the Central Coast Home School Theater Ensemble. And so you can do this. And, you know, it only takes a few families. You don't have to have a big group. But if, you know, if you want something for your kids and it isn't there, easily accessible, then go ahead, start it. And, yep. and you don't have to know everything about it. Exactly. You know, we started the debate club totally ignorant. <laughs> we knew as little as any of the students. Right. But, you know, we learned along with them. Sure. And, you know, I was very, very happy that eventually, it was the year after I left, that California debate club, the uh, one young man won the national STOA policy debate. Nice. And, Congratulations. Uh, so, you know, you, you can go from zero to something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over time. Um, the thing that got me really interested in doing this talk, Hacking High School, was the idea of college credits yes. and dual enrollment. Exactly. And this is something that sometimes just never occurs to people because they think the way things always have been is – you go to high school, you get a good enough transcript, you take your SAT or ACT, and then you apply to a college. And if you have good enough numbers, then you can get into a better college. And that's what everybody has to do. And you start out with zero credits. So truth is, that is not what everybody has to do. No. In fact, there are many ways to game that system. And uh, I would think among our listeners, a very high percentage of our listeners who have high school age students, 15, 16, Mm -hmm. those kids could easily start taking college classes in one of many different venues or formats. And the idea of dual enrollment or dual credit is that you take a college or university level class and you get credit at the college or university level, and hopefully that is a accredited school, so the credits are transferable. And you can also put that on a high school transcript and get dual credit or dual enrollment. And people have been doing this for a very long time. Sure. This is not a particularly new idea. It is certainly gaining popularity, though. It is definitely gaining popularity, particularly with some of the colleges and universities yes. that are increasingly needing to bring in the highest quality of students yes. to yes. their school. Yes. And so this can be as simple as uh, being a high school student, going to the local community college. Essentially, all you have to do is pass a reading test that says you can read at a college level, sure. which most homeschool 14, 15-year-old kids can do. Right. And then you can start taking classes. 
Well, and I would just caution just some of our listeners, of course, all the cautions that you want to throw out there. But the the first one I want to mention is a lot of colleges don't actually issue credit until they reach that golden age of 16. Well, actually, <laughs> the specific term that's used is a junior. A junior. Okay. Okay. And there is no rule anywhere that says you have to be a junior when you're 16. This is true. Yeah. Uh, if you skip a grade, we talked about this a few episodes ago, you would be a year ahead. It's true. If you skip two grades, you could be, right. you know, 14. Right. In fact, I just heard on a news podcast yesterday about an 11-year-old girl in Mexico mm. who just received a master's degree in engineering. Oh, my word. She finished high school at nine or something, eight or nine. Wow. So, you know, that that obviously is an extreme <laughs> and unusual <laughs> circumstance. But for for a hundred years there have been kids that are much younger. Yes. But through their intelligence and work ethic and opportunity have, you know, gone far ahead of their age in terms of grade level. So we can challenge that paradigm a little bit. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, parents say, oh, you have to be a junior. I say, well, who's to say your 14-year-old isn't a junior? True. Yeah, I like it. Uh, but the thing uh, about the dual enrollment is, you, like I said, you can start very easily, community college. There are also many schools that offer online mm -hmm. for credit college-level classes to high school age students. That's right. And uh, the, the list is too long to even name right now. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention our own partnership. We have many students who are going through the Structure and Style for Students Year One Level C, which we created for high school students. And colleges, two in particular, have said those students are doing are doing writing at a college level and we can do dual enrollment. And how do we do that? Well, link in the show notes, but we're working through an organization called Christian Halls International to kind of help curate getting those credits. So. Yeah, Christian Halls International is a great organization. Their vision is brilliant. Uh, there's also another one, uh, Unbound. Oh, yes. And we had Jonathan Brush on a podcast some time ago. Uh, they also are able to have high school students do their program and get college credits as they are moving, you know, through those last two or three years yeah. of, of, I guess, childhood, if you right. want to call it that. Although 16-year-olds doing college classes they seem pretty grown up for well, the most part. I just want to speak to that really quickly, too, that homeschooling mom that's maybe entering those high school years or maybe it's just a few years out. The lovely thing about homeschooling high school, if you've done it right up to this point, is those kids really want to own their own education. And all you have to do is coach and guide and write the checks. <laughs> yeah, and and on the, on the finance side, what's interesting is most of the schools, especially the private schools that offer uh, online or distance learning college credit courses mm -hmm. for high school age students, do so at a much lower cost than if those kids are then 18 and, and do that. Sure. So there's a, there's a financial benefit to doing this at a young age as well. And one of the things is these schools, you know, if they can get you a year 
or maybe two years of college credits before you, quote, finish high school, you are more likely then to go to that school to finish your degree. Oh, it's a marketing strategy. I love it. It is a market, but it's a it's it's a win-win. Yes. Really. And you don't obviously have to go to that school if they're transferable. But, you know, I know any number of kids who finished their high school years with an associate's degree worth of credits. Yeah. You know, a full two years of credit. And the benefit there is, number one, you're, you're kind of outside the whole system. Like if you have an associate's of arts degree or you have two years of college credit, a school you're applying to isn't really going to care very much about a high school transcript. You can put one together and yeah, but it, it's kind of moot at that point. Also, a lot of times they don't even need you to take an ACT or SAT test right. because you're a proven factor. Yes, exactly. And the fact that you've succeeded and usually with pretty good grades, well, they're, they want you. You know, that you're you're going to have a very high chance of success in their institution. Yep. Great. And I actually know people, I have met people who finished their bachelor's degree by the end of high school. Wow. And I know one girl who finished her master's in curriculum instruction hmm. by the age of 20. Wow. Right? So really, and I, I, you know, she's probably smart and she works hard and she's a good reader and writer. I know that. But I wouldn't say she's so far exceptional that there aren't many other that could do people this. who could yep. do that. Yep. And then one last thing, and I know we got to keep going because we always run out of time, but one last thing that a lot of people don't realize is that, especially today, the rigor level mm. of college classes is really not much different than the rigor level of high school classes, and certainly not much different than the rigor level of high school classes a few decades ago, right? Yes. Uh, what is different? Let's say you take biology in high school, as most people do. Well, you go take first-year biology in a college or university. It's the same stuff. Mm -hmm. It's the same stuff. Uh, usually the only difference is in high school, they'll stretch it out over a whole year. And in the college or university, they'll compress it into one semester. And in a way, it's almost convenient to have it a little more compressed because then you can go deeper and focus on it. And, you know, you think about high school, well, you probably have six, seven classes. Well, how many classes do you generally have in your first year of college? Three or four. So, you know, it's essentially the same kind of thing. And one last thing I would point out to parents who may be thinking, well, that's kind of, I don't know. I'm worried about the environment. I'm worried about sure. what my young, you know, person, 14-year-old, <laughs> yeah, will encounter. I think it's actually safer to go into a college environment, either virtual or in person, at a younger age while you're still living at home. That way, if there's some kind of goofy stuff that comes up from the professor or from the reading or video materials they provide or from other students, if you're living at home, you can talk that stuff through and your kids have questions and they're going to encounter, say, philosophies or concepts that may conflict with the worldview they have been brought up with. Sure. And they're going to want to talk about that. Well, that's a lot better than if they go away to a different city and they're living in a building with a whole bunch of other 18-year-olds. And then who are they going to talk and to? And who are they going to talk to? So, you know, in a way, it's actually safer to send a kid to college when they're a couple years younger 
or a couple years older than the supermajority of kids. Yeah. And I want to say one more thing about community colleges because, you know, there's upside and downside. They are public schools, so they have to kind of do public schoolish curriculum guidelines. But I have found that the teachers at community colleges very often like teaching more than teachers in universities. Because, you know, if you're a professor at a university, you're either a graduate student or you're, you know, on the publisher parish tenure track. And so you're in this kind of political academic rat race and teaching students is not the most important part of your life. People in community colleges, they, they don't want that. They don't want the stress, the craziness. That's not their career objective. They actually like teaching. Mm -hmm. That's why they're there. Right. And so I would say, you know, that my observations of my kids who did take community college courses is those teachers were superior. Hmm. They, they were better. And, you know, one last consideration is the social demographic is actually much more diverse. Sure. If you send a kid off to the state university and everybody is 18 years old, it's a it's a very narrow demographic. But at a community college, you've got, you know, kids possibly younger than you even, people in their 30s, 40s, 70s, uh, people from different countries and culture. And everyone is there primarily to learn and get a better life out of better education. Right. Whereas so often kids just go off to college because that's the thing to do. Sure. Rather than having to to work hard to make that happen. So I think you get a, a greater diversity of people, kind of a higher quality in many ways of people wanting to make the most of that experience. All right. So there we are with part one of Hacking High School. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.